A recap of our top story now. The US government is stepping in to shore up confidence in the banking system following the sudden collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. The fact that they went beyond the $250,000 statutory limit and say depositors are going to be kept whole is both a sign of how concerned they are that, uh, that this could spread. The Biden administration has announced it will extend a federal backstop to all of the failed bank's deposits. And money came gushing in uh, during uh, the COVID crisis. Silicon Valley Bank put a lot of that to work in high-yielding assets. Today, in order to attract and maintain deposits, you have to pay up. Up in with SVB. Very simple. This is a combination, a powerful one, of idiot management with a board above them that was incompetent. To make the bets they made means they know nothing about banking. I hate to be so blunt, but that's a horrible combination. They blew themselves up the old-fashioned way. Idiots. Welcome back to Why Are We Like This, the only true crime podcast that treats Florida like the active crime scene it is. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Tomas Kennedy. Hello, Tomas. Hey, hey, coming at you all hot from Miami traffic. Let's go. From live on I-95 or some thereabouts? Yep. (laughs) And if Tomas is here or in his car en route somewhere, uh, that can only mean that I'm also joined by my other co-host, Gerald Doherty. Jer, how goes it? I'm doing all right. I'm at a Super 8 uh, in Decatur, uh, Georgia, just outside Atlanta. Um, So I hope I'll be back in New York by tomorrow. That's what's up. So... Um, that was a really long haul that you pulled too. Good, good kudos on that one. Uh, we started at uh, 5 p.m. and we got here at 10 in the morning. Going where many, um, yeah. you know, pull, pulling pulling the drive that many, uh, you know, long haul um, cocaine dealers have have done many many times. I'm before. I'm in the information dealing business these days. <laughs> <laughs> Fellas, I'm flush right now. I don't know about Dangerous you. Dangerous drug, you know? <laughs> I, I don't know about you guys, but uh, on Monday, I hit up the old uh, J.P. Morgan Chase branch. I did what every responsible consumer across the country should definitely be doing right now. I withdrew every dime to my name, uh, went fully liquid. Uh, while all of you fools get stuck on the wrong side of an inevitable bank run, I am in the process of converting my life savings into the most stable and liquid investment there is, cryptocurrency. Um, just, <laughs> you might be wondering why someone like me would choose to do something that seems so stupid. And to Buy that, low and sell high. <laughs> exactly. That's what they taught me in business school. <laughs> to that, I would respond, you clearly are not following some of the same Silicon Valley luminaries and icons uh, that I follow who have assured me that because their bank seems to be falling apart, everything is probably pretty close to falling apart. Today's guest is Doug Henwood whose name you know from a career spent reporting and writing about economics and finance. Uh, He's also a contributor at The Nation, where he just today published A Death in the Valley, what the end of SVB uh, reveals about VC class solidarity. He uh, is also the host of Behind the News podcast and radio show, so check that out as well. Um, Doug, welcome to Why Are We Like This? Oh, thanks for having me. I feel like I live in a very different world uh, than you Florida folks in cars and things. I'm here in my Brooklyn bedroom. That's a really good point. I, I want to <laughs> sit here a little bit because this is a Florida podcast and people are probably wondering, hey, Silicon Valley, 3,500 miles away from us. Why does this story matter? And we're going to get to that. But well, you're for, getting a lot of uh, refugees from Silicon Valley taxation. And the that's costs, exactly right. Yes. <laughs> At least part of them are the reason that Tomas is stuck in traffic right now. Yes. <laughs> and, our and our dipshit mayor. Um, for our listeners, Doug, who maybe don't have 
the same familiarity with this situation. Can we start with a, a quick recap? What is or was, I guess, Silicon Valley Bank and why have we all had to learn about it over the course of the last 10 days? Well, like 10 years ago, it was a small regional bank that serviced uh, tech businesses in the Silicon Valley. Uh, starting around 2018, when uh, the Trump administration, with the help of Barney Frank, a uh, bank lobbyist, uh, former senator, uh, for, uh, former House member, and uh, the, the uh, one of the names on the Dodd-Frank bill, uh, they decided they were going to ease regulations on like mid-sized banks. And so uh, that meant there wouldn't be any kind of scrutiny, no stress tests that the Federal Reserve and the other regulators apply to the big banks to see how they could handle various uh, financial uh, difficulties. So uh, Silicon Valley Bank grew like crazy. And at the same time, the whole venture capital industry, the whole tech industry was just rolling in cash because the Federal Reserve was pumping money into the system to initially get out of the Great Recession. And then they were pumping more cash. Uh, When COVID hit, they kept interest rates close to zero for a decade which is just manna for speculation. They love low interest rates. They borrow, and uh, and also then if there's there's no uh, there's no easy way to earn uh, you know, a few points of interest. If then then you just go for more and more aggressive investments. On um, the tech industry and the venture capitalists were just rolling in cash, and they're putting a lot of it in Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank uh, then uh, discovered that it really didn't know what to do with all that money. Uh, it's uh, it's you know, tech customers, it's VC customers just rolling in cash. They didn't need to borrow any money. Now, the normal thing a bank does is uh, takes uh, deposits, it's oversimplifying, but not not, not dangerously. Um, They take deposits and with that make loans. Uh, And then with the money they can't lend out, uh, they buy securities, usually things like treasury bonds, safe stuff. Um, And so the normal bank has between 60 and 80% of its money in loans and the balance in securities. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank kind of turned that on its head. They just uh, didn't have that many, much in the way of loans and a whole lot of uh, securities. Uh, And uh, they bought a lot of bonds at a very low, when interest rates were close to zero. As interest rates rose over the last year, uh, the bonds fell in value, which is what older bonds do when interest rates rise, uh, and they found themselves with very large paper losses. Uh, and the regulators should have noticed this. They should have told them not to do it. The management should have been on top of this. They didn't have a risk officer for all of last year um, right. or most of last year. So it just, uh, at least on paper, was uh, falling into the red. Uh, it's uh, savvy venture capital customers and tech customers found out and uh, immediately launched a run in the bank. And uh, within a matter of hours, really, it was pretty much dead. Uh, you know, you, banks- yeah, you, call, you called this the maybe, uh, maybe the first ever social media, and I'm paraphrasing from your article, the social media enabled bank run. Like we have not seen something like this. Yeah, it ha- that's what it just sped it up so quickly. Um, the, uh, the tech guys, the VCs were on their Slack channels and on their WhatsApp channels. Uh, then there are people on Twitter, who are saying this place, this this thing is doomed, get all your money out. And it just happened so quickly. You know, we've had many bank failures in U.S. history. We had like 5,000 in the early 1930s. We had about 2,000 in the 1980s and early 90s. So, you know, we've, we've had bank failures and many bank failures in American history. But this one, just the, 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 the timescale was so sped up because of, uh, you know, instant communication. Uh, and it's just remarkable that these guys, um, then, you know, what's in the headline is that uh, they – 
say and write all these sentimental things about what a wonderful place it was. Uh, there was a piece in the Financial Times by one of their VC customers that everybody knew your name. You know, it's like you know, a homey, you know, local market. And then uh, when when it hit a wall, um, as some VC said to the Financial Times, um, when panic, when you want to be the one who panics first. Uh, right. You don't want you don't want the uh, the other guy to get the money there first. Um, now. Part of the issue was that, you know, bank deposits are insured by the FDIC, but they cap them at $250,000. Something like 95% of the uh, their deposits are over that limit. Um, and so everybody was scared they were not going to get insured. Right. This was a cash-rich ca- crowd, as you mentioned a moment ago. Like, these were people yeah. who were enjoying the benefits of mostly free money for a really long time. Yeah. I mean, you know, imagine having a problem like that, having so much money you don't know what to do with it. <laughs> it's really... Uh, it's Isn't that a line in every recent Scorsese movie where the guy is a criminal? <laughs> <laughs> Doug, Doug, so I don't, I don't mean to be crude and maybe I'm being unsophisticated when I say this, but what you describe it sounds a lot like a Ponzi scheme that was uh, basically tolerated and allowed to operate. Is that an, an unfair assessment? Well, you know, there's an element of a Ponzi scheme about banking. Um, banks generally, this is one of the the major problems of finance over the you know the, over the centuries. Really, banks, um, as they say, borrow short and lend long. So if you put a uh, put a deposit in a bank, you want to be able to get it tomorrow if you need it. But there aren't many loans that a bank can make that are that are like that are like that. Um, so they they will lend people you know, things for terms of years. Um, so that's the problem that you just have to um, uh, have the faith that the bank is going to be there tomorrow and will be able to pay out. Uh, and the minute people doubt that and start uh, withdrawing money, the bank is finished. Um, they're just very vulnerable to these sorts of runs. Uh, and you can minimize the risks of that. Uh, the regulators are supposed to look over you know their books and say no, don't do that. They should have said don't buy all these long term bonds that expose you to very large losses. Um, but they didn't. Um, the Bloomberg reported earlier today that the um, uh, that the San Francisco Fed, which is its local regulator or one of its local regulators, had noticed uh, that these were very risky things they were doing, and so they wrote all these anguished memos late last year. But management didn't do anything about it, and the the senior management of the Federal Reserve didn't do anything about it, and so here we are with this enormous problem. Yeah. Tomas, this reminds me so much of like like it's 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 analogous to. The Democratic Party just setting up so many things during the course of the Obama era where it's like, well, we're always just going to have a Democratic president forever. So we'll be OK. This is going to be fine if we set things up this way. Well, they also thought, you know, we're going to have interest rates of zero or one percent forever. Right, exactly. Too. They thought that these conditions would stay, you know, static forever as if we don't average what it, I mean, like, you know, better than we do, Doug. What is it like on average every eight years? This country has some sort of yep. economic retraction or something. Yeah, it used to be a lot quicker. Um, the, the cycles used to be just two or three years, uh, but we've gotten used to, since the 1980s, these long, long expansions. Uh, and in the early 90s, we had a mild recession um, after a long expansion in the 80s. In the early 2000s, we had the dot-com collapse, but even the real economy didn't, the recession wasn't that terrible. So we got used to these like eight-year long expansions. And then we had another one that went from 2000, um, uh, 2009, 2010, it took a long time to get out of that Great Recession, but you know, we were out of it by 2010, more or less. Um, and then we didn't really have a recession until COVID hit. So we went a decade with these really low interest rates and relatively placid circumstances. Uh, and you know, it was not like people weren't like, – it wasn't, wasn't a boom. People weren't really – the regular people were just not rolling in money. But it 
felt, you know, reasonably comfortable as far as the standards of American capitalism go. And uh, then suddenly uh, the Federal Reserve, well, first then we got hit by inflation, the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates, and then everything um, began to fall apart. So, Doug, you know, we, we, we're talking about this like risky uh, behavior, right, that the, the, the bank was, was uh, undertaking. And in your piece, um, you actually detail how SVV went without a, a chief risk officer for most of last year, but you know the the responsibility wasn't one sided in terms of just the bank, because you also detail that the FDIC, the Feds, and the California banking authorities should have all intervened, and and you know you, we we've talked a little bit about that and, and and caught this sort of risky behavior, but none of them did. So my question to you is, how is this possible? You know what I mean? How is a bank allowed to operate? You know, 16th largest bank in America, I believe, without a chief risk officer for most of last for most of a year, you know, especially with the, you know, with, with a recession looming in the horizon. And then, you know, both state and federal, you know, financial regulators are just, you know, looking the other way and, you know, I don't know, eating shit. <laughs> Um, well, I think several things are going on. One is just, you know, when things are going well, nobody wants to be the skunk at the picnic. Uh, you know, there's that old joke, guy jumps out of a 40-floor um, building, and as he passes the 20th floor, 20th floor, somebody asks him how things are going, and he says, oh, pretty good so far. Um, so that, that, that kind of consciousness always uh, prevails. <laughs> Alan Greenspan, during the uh, housing boom in the mid-2000s, early mid-2000s, used to say pretty much that. You know, well, everything is okay so far, so we shouldn't get worried about inflated house prices and crazy mortgages and all those things that eventually cause so much trouble. Uh, so, you know, it's just that kind of, it's, it's easy to get complacent. Um, and it's easy to think that current conditions are going to last forever. You know, I've read uh, a lot of the, the, the Fed's, uh, uh Federal Reserve's, uh, policy, uh, documents and every, um, quarter they do their projections for the next year or so, uh, a, a couple of years actually. Uh, and they're almost always just assuming that things are going to continue like they are. And you know, I don't think there's anything sinister about this necessarily. It's just the way humans think. Uh, we always think whenever you do a pre uh, prediction, you know, they, they, um, uh, bunch of pollsters and such, uh, ask people what their expectations for future inflation and interest rates are. And they're almost always extrapolations of the present and recent past. That's just the way people look at the future. Um, also we have, you know, what's called regulatory capture that a lot of these agencies are just very much creatures of their own industry or yeah. staffed by people who would like to get jobs in that industry when they leave They're government service. Yeah. yeah. Um, now the fed, there are an awful lot of very smart and very competent people at the fed. Um, mostly the economists and people who do the analysis stuff, but the people who do the supervision generally come out of the industry or would like to get a job in the industry. If you're at a senior level, the federal reserve, you can get a very nice job in banking when you leave. Uh, and then, um, there's, um, you know, there's that, that angle. Um, and, uh, it's just also, I think, a lot of the bank examiners and such are civil servants who are paid on a government scale, who are probably in awe of the bankers that they're supposed to supervise. They think, oh, they're so rich, they must be smart. Uh, and they're intimidated by them. Um, and uh, it's easy to, to demystify um, what they're doing. Um, so I think it's a combination of all those things, a bit of complacency, a bit of capture, uh, and a bit of uh, intimidation. I was going to say, as we write in your piece, we're about to find out how many sectors of the economy are able to withstand 
historically normal interest rates rather than the low interest rate phenomena that we've had for the last like decade and a half. In other words, how, how many, you know, sectors, how much of the economy can actually withstand, like we said, like a historically normal interest rate level? Yeah. I mean, the average, you know, just looking at um, uh, um, historical averages, uh, the so-called federal funds rate, which is the the, bank, the interest rate that the uh, the Federal Reserve most directly controls, it's the rate at which banks lend each each other money overnight, and it's their basic policy rate. That's when 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 they're setting a policy, they're targeting the federal federal funds rate. It's now about uh, I don't know four and a half percent, and to be normal, based on historical uh, averages and inflation uh, right now, it should be closer to eight percent. So we still have, despite this pretty sharp tightening over the last year. Um, we still have relatively low interest rates by historical standards. Um, but it's clear that um, we have a financial system that um, is uh, has gotten so used to really low interest rates. And the, the this is another angle too. The Fed has been, oh, for the last few years, the Fed had pumped, uh, the previous few years, the Fed had pumped about $5 trillion into the financial system. Um, and it made sense coming out of the banking crisis of 2008, um, or the COVID crisis 2020, but you know, you can't do that forever. And they just kept doing that forever. They just kept expanding. And there was a period, uh, I can't remember what year it was, maybe 2012, 13, when they started talking about how they were going to, as they say, taper this policy. And the, the markets freaked out. They had what the, they threw what the, came to be known as the taper tantrum. And uh, so the Fed said, oh, I guess we can't do that. So they went back to, to printing more money. Uh, and um, so I think, you know, you see these banks who've uh, just loaded up on a lot of low interest rate um, bonds that are getting hit by um, higher rates. Uh, the FDIC says they have something like, I think, $640 billion in unrealized losses from this. As far as we know, it could be even worse. Um, but then there's also um, the corporate sector. Uh, a whole lot of companies have been borrowing a lot of money at very low interest rates. Uh and not doing anything very noble with it. They're not like, you know, investing in capital equipment or expanding or doing those things that businesses are supposed to do. They did a lot of it to buy back their own stock to boost its value. So it's a lot of companies now have a whole lot of debt on their um, balance sheets at low interest rates that won't be able to withstand uh, a rise in interest rates. There's what uh, um, has been dubbed zombie companies that are just kept alive by low interest rates that will die when, um, as interest rates rise. So we don't know what's going to happen. You know, one of the things that happens in, in, in is as you get uh, as a, a cycle matures, interest rates rise, um, financial conditions get tighter, uh, and then the economy slows down. Something's going to blow up, and so Silicon Valley Bank was the first thing really that blew up. But you know, it's probably not the last. Um, there's probably just a whole lot of stuff we don't know about that's buried in the financial system or the uh, corporate structure balance sheets and such that uh, it could get ugly. We don't know, um, but it's not going to be pretty. And you know, so then the the Fed is in this uh, situation where you know it's got six percent inflation. It's worried about that. Um, I know a lot of people on the left don't really care about inflation, but I think it's hurt a lot of people. Yep. Um, uh, every time I go to the grocery store, I'm just shocked how much everything costs. Uh, and that, that's a very serious problem. And the only tool they have to deal with that is raising interest rates, slowing down the economy. And um, But on the other hand, they, can, they, they, they are now seeing that the financial system has a whole lot of vulnerabilities in it that um, – uh, that higher rates will uh, cause things to break. Uh, we you know, throughout the last, well, since 
for the first couple of years, a first couple of decades after World War II, there was there were no real financial crises. We'd have little recessions, you know, a little trouble here and there. The unemployment rates rise a bit, but starting in the early seventies, we start to see these. Um, uh, crises, Penn Central in the early 1970s. Then at the end of the decade, when Volcker drove up rates to, to the teens, um, we had just, after that, a few years later. just so many, you know, we had the third world debt crisis. We had all these banking failures, the savings and loan crises. Uh, early 90s, we had a whole bunch of additional bank failures. The dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s. Uh, and then we had, of course, the, the, the granddaddy of them all, the, the financial crisis and deep recession of the mid-2000s. Late, uh, sorry, later on, 2008 to 2010, and uh, we went. Um, the, the, the COVID uh, <laughs> produced many strange phenomena. Uh, one of them being, just in a narrowly economic sense, was it looked like the economy was close to the verge of recession uh, in 2019. Uh, interest rates were rising, uh, the economy was slowing down, a whole lot of signs that things were getting mature. Uh, and then COVID hit, uh, and then all these stimulus came in, you know, big, uh, government spending programs, uh, lower interest rates. So it, it was like that, uh, recession was averted and extended, um, the expansion by another couple of years. And so, when as expansions get older, people do more and more reckless things, assuming that they're going to go on like that forever. And here we are, um, finally, that uh, that COVID extension or post-COVID extension is uh, coming due. And uh, it, it, it seems like there could be lots of problems. There are a whole lot of other banks um, that also could follow um, uh, um, uh, Silicon Valley down the drain. Uh, First Republic, uh, in many ways, a similar bank uh, experiencing similar troubles. The big banks and the, and the, the Federal Reserve and, and the Treasury are try- organizing attempts to keep it afloat, but uh, they're really trying to. Uh, I mean, the fundamentals may be tr- uh, pr- troublesome. They're just trying to preserve confidence, and so people don't uh, launch another bank run. Uh, because once the bank run starts, you got trouble. So you know, th- there's to contain this. Right? They said that they are go- They're not gonna. They, they, the, the Biden administration. And, and the feds are saying that this is not a bailout, right? They're not going to bail out SVV. They're not going to bail out investors. They're not going to bail out the owners. They're, they're only going to basically make the depositors whole. But we know that depositors are insured up to $250,000, right? So they're basically stepping in and making sure that depositors that had more than $250,000 in this bank are made whole. But from what I've read, I mean, this is not your average bank with your average depositor. You know, we're talking about companies that invested millions and millions and millions of dollars. I've heard, for example, that the company Roku, I remember off the top of my head, but I think they had close to like a billion dollars, you know, deposited in this bank, which, you know, how insane is that in terms of like, you know, the CEO and the executives there to just make, put all their money into one bank. But I guess my question to you is, and in my opinion, I'll just be out front. I think it's wrong that we're 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 making these depositors whole. You know what I mean? In capitalism, they took a risk on this bank, and that risk didn't pay off. But would you agree with that? And would you call this a bailout or not? Well, let me make one, a couple of points here. First of all, the Roku thing. You know, these companies. I saw this guy uh, on on Twitter who um, is a guy who made a lot of money as a, a, a some kind of tech entrepreneur and now runs some nonprofits and he had all his nonprofits money 
uh, in this bank. And I said, like, have you ever heard of treasury bills? Like, why not? You know, why put all this money in a bank? Well, it's when you could do you know, treasury bills. They're not, ins- you know, they're not insured with bank insurance. But you know, if the federal government can't pay its bills, we're really in trouble. Right. So I don't understand why people put so much money in this bank in the first place. It made no sense to me at all. But okay, they did it. Uh, now uh, I completely, I'm very sympathetic to your point of view that people need to take a hit. Um, this is part of the problem with yeah. the kind of capitalism we run these days. You know, all the risks are shifted to um, the non-rich. Uh, we have socialism for the rich, but the thing is, they've got us hostage. Um, that uh, so, if uh, if the, um, the the people with deposits above two hundred and fifty uh, were not bailed out, there would have been runs in every other bank. And so, the fear was that um, the whole system would come collapsing down if the, you had those sorts of runs. Uh, you know, I guess it'd have to shut the banks like 1933 uh, to, to prevent that kind of thing. You, you um, so that that's the risk, you know, that if they if the panic spreads, and then you had people like Bill Ackman, the hedge fund dude, who who just he makes his money by um, spreading fears about companies. And he shorts he, he shorts their stock, hoping it's going to decline, and yeah, then he, he, he talk, talks a lot of shit about them. And then uh, he was doing this with the banking system. So God knows what Bill Ackman's actual interest in all this is, but he's like. People follow him. People listen to him. He's a big hedge fund guy. He made a billion dollars, billions of dollars. So he must know what he's talking about. Um, so people like that are actually going to encourage panic instead of trying to calm it. So it's it's a, it's a bad situation. They've got us all hostage. And, and I, I'm going to get a little populist here. You know what pisses me off, Doug? That when 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 I have an overdraft fee on my credit card and I don't have a lot of money in my check-ins account and I have to call Bank of America, you know, and stay there on the line for two hours to have some customer service representative and it's not their fault, but you know, you, 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 you get on the phone with them and you, you've spent hours waiting and then they tell you basically like, there's nothing I can do for you. Go fuck yourself. This is the bank policy. You know what I mean? That's, that's the experience of the average American and the average person with the banking system. But then, you know, the Silicon Valley bank assholes fuck everything up. They fucked their bank up because they 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 were irresponsible and they didn't good they didn't make good financial decisions and then you have people like Ro Khanna and Nancy Pelosi and other you know elected officials from California who are close to the tech industry you know basically making moves to bail these assholes out right and and another thing that pisses me off is you know we've had this policy of raising interest rates by the Feds you know what I mean and basically trying to slam the brakes on the economy and cool down the economy, you know, because of the inflation. And, and, it, and it's, it's, it's at the same time that I get why they're trying to do that. It's hurting your average worker. Right. But now, now that it's hurt, you know what I mean? The depositors from SVV. Oh my God. What, what's going to be the, the, the effect on main street. We can't allow this to happen. We have to intervene. So I, I just think that it's, it's really hypocritical and it really, pisses me off. You know what I mean? The, the priorities. I, I can't disagree with the word you said. I mean, we're, but we have this weird model of capitalism now where the capitalist can never take a hit. Uh, the banking system is really weird. The banking system is essentially a public utility. 
uh, banks are very much at the center of the whole money system. They're inseparable from uh, the money system. You know, the, nothing. If the banking system goes, everything goes. I mean, every you know, and this is one of the reasons that crypto is so weird. Like you know, they have a hard time connecting with the real financial system, um, and so they live in their own universe. But you can't really do much with with their coins. Um, but you know, you're absolutely right that. Um, uh, and the, the tears being shed over the fact that these companies wouldn't be able to make payroll. You know, I'm sure that was the first thing in their minds. They really cared about the workers. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's insulting. It's just, you know, it's really insulting. And you just want to, uh, as Mencken said, you know, roll up your sleeve, hoist the black flags and start slitting, slitting throats. I mean, it's just, uh, I can completely understand that populist impulse. But we're, yes, we, we're, we don't want to slit any throats. It's just a metaphor. You know, H.L. Mencken was a colorful writer. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's maddening. And, you know, I can also say that we've done all these bailouts now. We've had so many of them now. We're in like, a, you know, fifth or sixth round of major bailouts since uh, over the last, I don't know, 40 some years. Uh, and uh, nothing ever really changes. Uh, you know, we get, the, the proper approach would be, all right, we'll bail you out this time, but we're going to make sure you don't do it again. And Dodd-Frank, to some degree, was an attempt to make sure we didn't do it again. But then, uh, as soon as Dodd-Frank passed and the crisis, uh, the, 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 the crisis feel, felt like it was over, they started weakening it. So yeah, all the supervision was weakening the knees out of it. And, and the then, like out. Barney Frank himself, you know, uh, uh, lobbies to weaken his own bill, and then gets a, a job on the board of Signature Bank, which uh, is another one. The, another one of these. Uh, casualties of the last week, um, less uh, less famous than Silicon Valley, but you know, similar story. Uh, that was a lot of crypto stuff, but uh, it was uh, Barney Frank cashed in. He made like two and a half mil uh, for um, essentially for as we don't want to say it's a reward. That would be you know, no, no, um, no, no. jumping to conclusions and possibly uh, involve litigation. But uh, yeah, we you know, know it's kind of, it looks kind of strange that yeah. uh, you know he he uh, lobbied to um, uh, soften the um, the regulation and then ends up uh, on the uh, the board of a bank that collapses because the regulations were softened. Doug, can we talk about um, one of the central thesis the central thesis in in your article that um, we read prior to this to this episode. Uh, and that is the idea of sort of like class solidarity amongst all these um, ghouls that are that are um, trying to affect this outcome. And I, I'll be honest with you, I kind of at first disagreed. I read I read it your, your full article and, and ended up agreeing, but I did disagree in one way. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this. There was at least I wouldn't maybe call it solidarity, but there was absolutely some triangulation at the beginning of last weekend where anybody who's worked in communications could identify there was a concerted PR effort on social media to let people know from all of these high follow accounts and people who are very influential, letting us know this is all caps, the worst thing that is ever going to happen to anybody. Be afraid, be very afraid. So it did seem like they came together, at least for that PR effort, to affect an outcome of a bailout, which seems like they're probably going to end up getting. Um, but you make some really good points about their inability to kind of coalesce. And I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit. Yeah, well, I was thinking, um, and I mentioned this in the piece, uh, J.P. Morgan in the panic of 1907 assembled all the major bankers in New York uh, and locked them into his library uh, until they uh, came up with a bailout for this one particularly troubled brokerage firm, which was, if it had failed, it would have brought a whole bunch of stuff down. Yeah. Uh, and M Morgan did it. Um, you know, he made money off this. He 
the, the, he arranged the bailout so that one of his properties got uh, got treated very well. But on the other hand, he's like the, the this the um, the brotherhood of the banking, the banking brotherhood um, had a leader, and uh, the leader was able to force him to come to some kind of uh, collective decision that um, actually saved their asses. You know, then the panic of 1907 was serious enough, and uh, that uh, it's one of the reasons they created the Federal Reserve was that you needed some kind of state agency to be the J.P. Morgan in that situation. But I mean, it just struck me that, um, you know, the, the fact that you could get, you know, these seven or eight bankers in J.P. Morgan's library with Morgan uh, himself uh, locking them in, which is just, he, it wasn't the first time he'd done this. You know, he'd lock people in, in, uh, in the room until they came to a conclusion that satisfied him. Um, but the yeah, that was, it was, um, I, I don't know, I think the, the bourgeoisie is um, the American bourgeoisie is much more of a rotten, selfish uh, formation than it was, and they were capable of uh, some degree of collective action. They were coming together as a real conscious ruling class, late nineteenth, early twentieth century, national and international scope. Um, they had some kind of project. I mean, I don't want to get too misty-eyed about them because they were, you know, cruel, imperialist, Ultimately, racist yeah. pigs. But you know. They did have some sense of how to organize things over the longer term. I don't think this current crop of financiers and capitalists has anything like um, um, a longer term vision. They're just like, uh, I think we've reached, which uh, Christian Parenti called the necrotic phase of American capitalism. It's that these people are, it's just a smash and grab thing now. Uh, and you look at like private equity, um, which um, has become so important in, in the financial and business landscape. That's nothing but a smash and grab ethic. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's these people are just not investing for the long term. You know they're not doing the things that capitalists are supposed to do. I mean the whole um, alleged social contract, which no, nobody ever presented me to sign, but you know that's that's the line. Is that uh, we let them uh, allow them to get rich because they do take the risks and do the investment and uh, do the innovation and they're rewarded for it. Uh, you know, it was always a lot of bullshit involved in that. But there was, uh, let me sort. I think there was a larger grain of truth to it um, decades ago than there is now. I think these guys just um, have the shortest possible time horizon, and you know, it, it, I think it affects the way they think about the climate crisis. They don't think that. I don't know whether they don't believe that life is going to be here or what they, they're going to run down in their bunkers when the, the water. Can, can I present you an alternative? Uh, I think it's, it's the strain of in this more modern day, um, you know, VC world. It's a strain of libertarianism. It's oh, yeah, strain absolutely. Of just me. And I'm all that matters. And if everybody thinks the way that I do, we'll all be great. If all we do is look out for just ourselves and the Peter Thielism of uh, the P Peter Thielification of, of these markets, it seems like that's if you wanted to kind of draw a line in the sand between the J.P. Morgans of yesteryear and the the Peter Thiels of today, it's that it's that like monomaniacal focus on just the self. Well, yeah, but then if you scratch a libertarian like Thiel or um, you know that, that whole crowd, they're actually quite authoritarian. They're really anti-democratic. Um, they really want to run things. They want the world run like a corporation. So like Teal's thinks of this sea-setting business. He wants to set up some sort of sovereign entity off the coast that he can run like a business. These people are really contemptuous of the masses, and they just want 
Yeah. Some of them are monarchists, or you know, like some of them yeah. are dictators. Um, this character, you know, what's his name? Mencius Moldbug, uh, Curtis Yarvin, um, who has the ear of people like Peel and uh, uh, J.D. Vance. They're really contemptuous of the masses, and they will talk a lot of libertarianism, um, but uh, you know, they really are, are, are fundamentally authoritarian. Uh, and you know, you, people wonder, for example, like you know, Milton Friedman. Uh, supposedly a libertarian of the old school. Why was he so close to Pinochet, the dictator? Well, you know, this, you know they, they, for them, freedom is for the upper classes and everyone else is meant to just shut up and go along. Uh, Friedman's grandson, um, Patry is his name, had a piece in a Cato Institute journal a few years ago in which he said he was just tired of democracy. Uh, he realized that libertarianism could never win elections. It's too unpopular. And so he's just ready to give up on democracy. And I think he's just being more honest than the rest of them are. Um, you know, uh, the best de definition of libertarianism I ever heard was, I got mine and fuck you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just, just like their intellectual, one of their intellectual leaders, Ayn Rand, who was a notorious tyrant, you know what I mean, in terms of her like close circles and the objectivist society and everybody that, you know, related to her and was like a mentee of hers detailed, you know, what an awful authoritarian, you know, person that didn't tolerate dissent or people disagreeing with her. I mean, the, the ideology has been founded by people that are like that for those purposes. Oh, absolutely. But then she didn't, I think she did take social security in her final she did days. Take right? social security <laughs> in her final day. That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but you know, Alan Greenspan was a protege of hers. Uh, and when Greenspan was appointed to the fed, I called up the feds press office and said, what, uh, what's with this, uh, you know, Ayn Rand protege taking over the federal reserve. This is kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, most of these people ignore me, but as soon as I mentioned Ayn Rand, uh, they passed me to, to their passed me through to their chief communications officer, uh, and uh, he said, "Oh, we have no comment on that, of course." And I said, "Has anybody else called for a comment?" He said, "No." Like no one was interested in the fact that this Ayn Rand protege was taking over the Fed, uh, but you know. I don't even know were people like tuned in in that way, the way that we are today. Like I, I, I don't to, to those sort of like. Uh, like the ideological inconsistency of putting somebody like that in that kind of a position. I mean, it's it well, the libertarians were. Yeah, no, the the broad, you know, the the public wasn't the journalistic world was not. Um, obviously, I was the only one who made that call. If the the Fed guy was telling me the truth, um, he said the magic word. Somebody can get, yeah. get paid but from PR. <laughs> the Freedman, the Freeman, I think it is. Um, a libertarian, little libertarian journal um, did an article sometime during Greenspan's reign at the Fed um, with the question, is Alan still one of us? And they concluded that he was. <laughs> but, you know, his problem, he ran this big statist institution. And he's, but, you know, that, that image of Greenspan uh, in the 2008 financial crisis with this pained look in his face, like not understanding you know, I don't understand it. Like, it wasn't supposed to happen like this. My kid, who was then three years old, I think, saw a, uh, a picture of Greenspan on the front page of the Financial Times with that distressed look on his face. And he said, why is this man sad? And, uh, you know, because his whole worldview is being challenged. And for, I don't know, six months maybe, um, Greenspan maybe had some thoughts. But then he just went back to the old way of thinking. And everyone goes back to the old way of operating because it uh, – it's working so well for them. 
Speaking of the Fed, I wanted to ask about the kind of fork in the road that they're facing right now, um, because up till now they'd been setting interest rates with the goal of reducing inflation. I think when last we spoke, inflation was above 8%. Now it's in the ballpark of six, the goal being 2%. I remember seeing, we were talking about social media, I remember seeing on Twitter people predicting on Friday that Monday would be a bloodbath. And then over the weekend, seeing that the, you know, the Treasury, the FDIC, you know, the rest would step in and protect the depositors at SVB. On Monday, the market did well because the expectation was now the Fed is going to cool off on interest rate uh, hikes in order to preserve the financial system because, you know, that's creating too much strain on the system as it exists now. I wanted to ask um, and also to get your opinion on, uh, I saw this in, uh, uh, I think it was Eric Levitz in uh, New York Magazine, the thought that it would actually be better to let some of these banks um I, I, it's it, the implied that it's better to let them fail a little bit because that would create, uh, I guess, some sort of um, moral hazard against risky lending that could bring down inflation like a uh, on its own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a, a bit of playing a game of chicken. Like, you know, right. who knows? Will, will it spread? Will it get out of control? You know, is it like uh, out of control nuclear reaction or something you can control and get some power from it? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, in the bank failures of the 80s and 90s, um, and even the mid-2000s, or um, 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, they, um, some of the depositors did not get paid off. Um, so like a, I think something like a quarter of the instances, the um, uh, those with deposits above the legal limit did not get paid off, or at least took some kind of hit, even if it's not a 100% loss, it was a partial loss. Um, so this was... Um, an experiment, but also, but this time also the um, management got kicked out. Uh, the stockholders and bondholders got wiped out, which is more severe than what uh, previous models. So they're taking a hit. Might um, might be a good lesson uh, uh, to to the others. Um, but uh, it's very. It's been very funny to watch the transformation of monetary politics over the last ten years. It used to be that Wall Street liked tight money and uh, would all, always applaud when the Fed was uh, tightening up because that would be, you know, in the long term, good for financial assets and uh, in the long term, weaken the working class and be great for financial returns. Um, but over the last decade or so, they've gotten so used to all this free money and 0% interest rates that they're no longer this force um, for austerity that they once were. Um, we used to talk about the bond vigilantes, that any time inflation rose, the bond vigilantes would go crazy, dump bonds, interest rates would rise, panic would ensue, and the Fed would promptly um, tighten up. Um, now, Wall Street is really a lobby for loose money. You see yeah. you know, BlackRock and entities like that calling for the Fed to be... Um, uh, easier. Um, it's, it's remarkable um, that uh, um, how dependent these guys. You know, they, they used to, <laughs> that class used to love to talk about welfare dependency and how it you know was morally corrosive uh, for people to get free money. But you know these people have uh, really become uh, dependent on it in such a large scale. Um, you know the entire AFDC program welfare that Clinton wiped out. You know was like $25, $30 billion a year in, in 1990s money. Um, you know, they can, they can blow that much in a single bank bailout now. 
the connection that I that I that I think of there is how, and it's been a couple of years since we had this argument. It was Trump was in the was in office at the time, but remember there was like a. A thing about like there was a narrative about like how much money the U.S. Post Office loses every year. And so the U.S. Post Office does something. It's supposed to like maybe not make money necessarily. It's but, a public uh, service. It's a freaking public service. Like it's like okay. And then on the other hand, you've got all of these Silicon uh, Silicon Valley Bank um, clients who the vast majority of them are heading up projects and startups that do not make money that don't even make enough like operating revenue to stay in business without all the free money that you're talking about. And it's just, it, 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 it doesn't jive. And I know that like every, almost every narrative that we can talk about with, with this subject comes back to hypocrisy, but it really rubs me the wrong way that these like rock ribbed, you, you'd call them like rugged individualists, uh, you know, these, these masters of the universe, they, they, it's not that something kicked the knees out from underneath their business. It's that their businesses, by and large, T, you talked about Roku. At least Roku makes something. The list that I saw yeah. that Roku was on was a bunch of things like Ubong and Jumbo and Gumblop. And you look them up and it's like, oh, that's the 45th most popular payment processing service that happens to run <laughs> on the fucking same thing, that the, the same technology that we already have as a public service, our banking system. It's all built on bullshit and it's just checks getting moved around for people. They don't even have operating revenue. And I feel like, I don't know. It, I feel like I'm taking goddamn pr- crazy pills when I read about all these businesses and like they're like, I've run a business before. You know what happens when there's like a problem with the bank? Shit. You have to dip into your operating revenue, the money that you have on hand, maybe into petty cash to pay people out. These companies don't fucking have that because they're not making any money. Uh, and I feel like that's a, a big part that's lost in this is that all these tealites and all of these SVB clients, they don't, they're not actually running successful businesses by and large. No, it's true. I mean, it's just remarkable about this 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 bubble we've seen the unicorns and all this business, those venture capital um, uh, funding of the past decade. You know, I I remember the the late '90s, the dot com bubble, and I'd you know looking in awe at some of these things. They just seem like crazy schemes that are never going to make a dime. But they are far more solid than anything we're seeing we've seen in the last generation. Um, yeah. I, and some of the products, you know, you go back late '90s. Some of those things they were building the internet. Fiber optic cables, uh, uh, you know, Amazon for all its um, evil doing is you know a very successful company. It's very good at what it does, um, but you know, you, the, as you say, they're, 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 they're things with funny names, and it's really hard to describe what their product is. Uh, and um, even Uber, which has been around for what like a dozen years, um, still isn't really making money. Um, uh, it's just amazing how how these people have just become so uh, uh, dependent upon um, venture capital handouts, which ultimately came from the Federal Reserve's um, money presses. Um, but uh, you know, they just you look at some of these things, you say, uh, do they ever have a prospect of making any money? And I don't know. And is what they're doing actually useful? Like, I, I just I'm amazed. You know, they the, the, these tech uh, overlords love to talk about uh, how they're making the future and they're doing stuff that's so so important. And you look at what they actually do, and it's like, what the hell is this nonsense? Doug, where do we go from here? I mean, we've kind of like touched on it a little bit, but like, more. I mean, I guess we don't know what the what's in store for the financial system. I mean, we're seeing you know pretty shaky foundations on on a lot of these institutions. I mean, Credit Suisse is looking shaky, but yeah. What, what is your prediction? And, 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 
and how can we how could can this system be salvaged or is it beyond repair are we just are we just condemned to a cycle of of boom and bust until capitalism completely breaks down and uh, the, the climate crisis uh just you know uh, uh instant contradictions <laughs> Well, you know, it's really hard to summon too much optimism, and I'm temperamentally um, pessimistic. Um, although, you know, I seem like a more or less. Happy hey, you never person, end up disappointed. At least that way, you never end up disappointed. That's true, uh, but it's really hard to um, find something good to say about the current situation. Um, you know, there are some good things in politics now. My, my, me and my colleagues in DSA are trying our best uh, to make things a little better. We're getting a little better in New York State. We've got you know a little socialist caucus in the New York State legislature um, doing good things. But the broader um, political situation seems really, really grim. Uh, and the economy just is, uh, seems more screwed than ever. There's little investment for the long term. Our upper classes are just selfish and rotten and um, can't think beyond the end of their noses or the next quarterly financial report. Uh, the climate crisis, you know. I mean, I remember um, a few months ago on Twitter, uh, I was uh, uh, having an exchange with Michael Arrington, who was this VC guy who founded TechCrunch and all that nonsense. Yeah. Uh, and he is one of those people who had just moved from the Silicon Valley to Florida. And he was very upset because his real estate agent had blabbed what his location was to some trade publication. I didn't know yeah. until this event that there was there's actually a mansion trade press so yes no the real, real deal, i'm not gonna you never you know what i'm not gonna give him a plug on the website but yes on the podcast but yes that's like an entire like cottage industry down here where do rich people live and what's yeah it's it's really yeah. grotesque um but kind of amusing so anyway he's mad at this broker because she revealed where he lives so he's gonna have to sell the house so but i looked up the address of where he'd moved to and it's right in the ocean front surrounded by canals and i was like dude you left the high tax region and aren't you worried that your house is going to end up underwater in a few years? And he blocked me um, promptly. Um, <laughs> and I have a friend who's a real estate banker in South Florida. And like, he's been in like in their financing. I mean, he's a, he's a Marxist, <laughs> got in it through labor unions, but you know, he's a very sensible guy. And uh, he just looks at these people um, and uh, says, they just have no sense of uh, the climate crisis at all. And, you know, you and Miami are right in the, the front lines of it. Um, what you, I, 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 you know, better than I, what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems grim, and like you have people like Michael Arrington not even being like they didn't even want to hear about it. Uh, they're not able to plan for it. Uh, uh, you would think that a serious ruling class would say, hey, "We got a problem with this climate crisis, uh, and we should really actually do something about it." But no, um, they just seem um, so short-sighted. And you know, in a society like ours, it's so deeply hierarchical, so undemocratic, in which the masses of the population are. Um, through a combination of uh, uh, um, socialization and structural uh, structural design, uh, completely uh, just uh, out of the system, um, demobilized from any kind of political action, uh, the, the state of the ruling class is very important. And the state of our ruling class now is very, very debased and rotten. Um, and they seem unable um, to do anything about these kinds of situations. So here we are on like, you know, the fifth or sixth major financial crisis of the last uh, several decades. And 
I have a hard time believing much of anything is going to change. We've seen, you know, Biden talking a little tougher. We don't want to have another bailout. He doesn't want to repeat the mistakes of Obama. He understands what the, the political consequences of that are. But like I was saying earlier, I'm like, the rich folks have everyone by a hostage. Right. You know, if, if you don't bail us out, yeah. then everything's going to come tumbling down. Ha, ha, ha. Like, and then, you know, they have their bunkers where they're going to go when the waters rise. Now, there's your growth <laughs> industry. If you yeah. want to get into tech and you want to, and you, and you really actually want to make some money, the robots that are dogs with lasers in the eyes, that's the money that, you know, and for, for sell it to the rich people for their, you know, bunker protection. Robots. But then they're going to have to get out at some point, you know, and then if the society around them has collapsed, what does that mean? What do they save themselves from? I think that's, you know, the ultimate uh, um, libertarian delusion that you can somehow seal yourself off in this underground bunker and save and yourself. You no, this is, yourself. Yeah. there really is such a thing as society. You know, you're going to have to deal everything with it. Is, and, everything's uh, too big to up, fail dudes. now until it all fails. I'll tell you guys a story before we wrap up. So uh, my ex-girlfriend and I, uh, we wanted to take uh, her mother out on a on a boat uh, here in Miami because her, her mom uh, liked boats. So we went to Bayside, which is a tourist trap area of uh, Miami, and we rented this little like boat tour of Biscayne Bay, which is you know the the the, the, the bay here that has like the you know the the city view of Miami, and it was like a nice boat tour. But what the tour actually consisted of, and we didn't realize this, was actually circling like Fisher Island and Star Island and these like, you know, islands where like the celeb celebrities and, you know, the, the, the millionaire and billionaire class of Miami lives in and they, and, and the boat captain or, or and tour guide basically pointing out and saying like, this is where Gloria Stefan lives. And this is where Jennifer Lopez mm -hmm. lives. And, you know, and just like looking at these like mansions and houses and, it was just so depressing and depraved. And, and yeah, like the whole time I was like, this is going to be underwater relatively soon, you know? And, you know, Doug, it, it's like, it's like you're saying, right? Like our ruling class has no conception of the, of the, of the impending climate crisis and no plan for it. It reminded me of the idiots at Silicon Valley bank, right? Like the same type of, of, of short-sighted short-term thinking permeates everything. And yeah, it's uh well, they always think they can insulate themselves from these things, but you know, the climate crisis, there's no escape from that one. I mean, no, you can maybe like hide from it for a little while, but it's going to catch yeah. up with you. None of us are getting out of this alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that, you can say that about life itself. So, you know. Yeah, exactly. That was, <laughs> yeah. We have so much more that we would love to talk with you. Doug, we're going to have you back on because I want to talk to you about other stuff too in the future. Um, you know, like the, the idea that South Florida and specifically South Florida is a kind of a gullible mark for this, you know, Silicon Valley tech hub of the future conversation and the way that we've bought into that. I would love to. Well, have you've you got on. a long history of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're we're great at being marks down here. It's <laughs> awesome. Um, but again, yeah. our well, guest today, and I also want to get you on and 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 pin you down on uh, what kind of odds you would need to bet that any Silicon Valley exec Silicon Valley bank executive will end up um, behind bars for anything. Oh, I'll bad. say that right now. Zero. It's not going to happen. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, again, I, I think I agree with that. With get, get Vegas on the horn. Um, again, our guest today was Doug Henwood. You can find his writing in the nation he, where he is the contributing editor. Um, he, you can also hear him on behind the news, the podcast and radio show. Uh, we're going to link it here in, in the uh, show notes. So you can just uh, click right down there. Um, Doug, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. It. Uh, thanks for having me. It was fun and uh, happy to come back anytime. Mm -hmm.